Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Or if you're a first time listener, welcome to the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Galena. I will be your host for the day. And with me, I have Patrick Lundstrom. Um, Today, him and I are going to be talking about um, some leadership skills and some foundations that follow them. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you for having me, Galena. How are you today? I am wonderful. Um, So first of all, Patrick, you've been in leadership roles for 10 some years, um, various organizations, Kind of give me a little bit more about your background in leadership and team development. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's been it's been ten years or so over probably four or five different organizations, ranging from being in the government. You know, I did some stuff in retail. I've done some uh, um, some work in construction. You know, it's really been all over the place. So I kind of have a wide skill set to uh, to kind of draw from. That's fantastic, and so. With that, um, Patrick is not from a clinical laboratory setting, but I think it's very valuable for us to um, find different viewpoints. And and leadership really is a skill set that translates well between organizations um, and different roles. So I think it will be really valuable to have uh, a different perspective of leadership. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, I think one of the traps that we get into the most as leaders, especially when we've been doing something for five, six, seven, eight years, and it's been the same thing, we we fall into the mindset that the leadership we have today is only applicable to the job that we're doing today. When in actuality, your your leadership philosophy follows you wherever you go, and it can be applied to any business that you work in. I love it. And I love that you right away start talking about leadership philosophy because you know, I've I've done the Leadership Academy and have taken a number of leadership courses, and there are so many um, formulas you're given for being a good leader. So let's start by talking about leadership philosophy and and how do you develop that? And is you know taking the leadership personality tests and attending all these seminars um, the value in those, and how to how to translate what you learn in those seminars and sessions into your personal leadership philosophy. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a, a two, two sides of, of the same fence with answering specifically about, you know, is there value to going to leadership courses and seminars and taking leadership personality tests? Yeah, there's value to it if you choose for it to have value. You know, at the end of the day, you could take 300 leadership tests and get 300 different results. You know, even if you take one test and take it once a year for five years, what you will find is that your answers are different every year because as you grow and develop as a person, so does your leadership philosophy and how you apply it to what you do. So there's value to them in the time that you do them if you choose to find value. Um to develop a leadership philosophy isn't done on our own. As much as we like to claim that we're independent and we do everything on our own, we are a conglomerate of the people that we've interacted with and the lessons that we've learned from other people. 
the biggest value that I find in, in leadership personality quizzes or tests or seminars is really just an opportunity to take an introspective look at to you know, what I believe now versus what this person is telling me and how can I pick apart what they're giving me and apply it to what I want. What it sounds like to me too, is in order to have value in those, it you have to continue to recalibrate those quizzes. And it's not a one-time done, take it done. And this is my leadership style and that's it. It sounds like it's a process that you have to follow through long-term. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a continual process. You know, it never stops. Leadership is incredibly abstract. There isn't one way to be a leader. If you take yourself, for example, how many different leaders have you had in the last, let's say five years, a dozen, right? For math's sake, let's just call it a dozen. Every one of those leaders has been a little bit different. None of them have been exactly the same. And that ties into a larger um, thought process that we are not the same. We can never be the same person. We're very different people. So if we can't be the same people, how can we be the same leader? The truth is you can't. So it's a continual growth process. Let's say I'm a new leader. I've never done it before. I've made it. What is the first main steps in establishing your leadership style um, and presenting it to your team? How do you define to your team what kind of leader you're going to be? What's the value? What's the importance? What are your first steps? Yeah, you know, the first thing is, is really taking a deep dive and an introspective look at who you are, right? And what your strengths are, and more importantly, what your weaknesses are. And when you know what your weaknesses are, that's when you can really start to develop a leadership philosophy that's conducive to your success. And success is another one of those abstract words. We're going to use a lot of those during this podcast <laughs> because the definitions of words are specific to each of us. How I might define success is not how you would necessarily define success. So in order to build the foundation of our leadership philosophy, we have to know what we're bad at, right? Where our weaknesses are. And the first step is identifying those. The second step is being okay with those because you're not going to be able to correct everything overnight. And there's going to be some things you're not ever going to be able to necessarily correct. It's just part of your personality and who you are that you're not going to get rid of it. For example, I have a really, really bad habit of assuming if it's common sense to me, it's common sense to everybody. And I find myself getting very frustrated when I join a new team that they don't have the same common sense that I do. How ridiculous. They're not me. We've never worked together before. We mm -hmm. have no experience mm -hmm. with one another. How on earth would they know what my common sense is? They, they can't. So I continually have to make sure I take a step back and, and remove my own bias as much as possible when I'm interacting with a new team. It's some of the most exciting aspects of being a leader is taking over a new team or being integrated into a new team because you get to learn seven different people if you have seven different people on your on your team you don't get to be one leader you have to be eight with that team of seven you're one leader when you stand in front of them and you present the same information consistently to a group but each one of your subordinates each one of your team members needs a different leader you, for example, might be that team member that needs that affirmation. You need to hear from your leadership that, hey, Galena, you're really rocking it on this. I need to see more of this from you. Whereas your friend Bill might be the person who wants to be told you need to be better. 
You know, that's how I am as as a subordinate, right? When if, if when I'm speaking to my superiors, I don't need you to tell me what I'm doing good. My arrogance does that enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> what I need from my leadership is to to tell me where I can be better. You know, point me in the direction that gives me an opportunity to grow my weaknesses because I know how to identify my strengths. That's an excellent point. And what that leads me to is a difference between becoming a leader for a brand new organization where you have never met any one of your team members versus becoming a leader as a matter of a promotion within your current, you know, for us, it would be a laboratory. And I think there's a very big dynamic difference potentially between what that looks like. And there's some um, advantages to being a new leader at a new organization um, and there's advantages to being promoted within your team. Um, so let's start with being promoted within your team, right? The challenge is potentially the transition of one day you are an equal member of this laboratory and then the next day you are a leader. So how would you uh, bridge that transition and change that expectation that now you are the leader? of that group. I'm glad you worded it the way that you did. <clears throat> Excuse me. And let's break down that question a little bit, kind of starting right around in the middle. Um, you had mentioned, I think the word that you used was being equal one day and then being a leader the next day. Leadership doesn't, leadership breeds you titles. Titles don't bring you leadership. Just because you're promoted into a supervisory role doesn't make you a leader. Anybody can be a supervisor. Anybody can tell other people what to do. The difference between a boss and a leader is a leader inspires their teams to want to work more for them. A boss just walks around and tells people what to do. For me personally, it's a much easier transition when you're being promoted from within your team or within your organization. You have the ability to set the foundations with your peers that you understand the job, you understand their plights in a way that only peers can. Once you excuse me, once you are, you know, assume into a leadership role, very clear boundaries need to be set between yourself and your now team, right? And where you might yesterday have had lunch with your entire team and been able to, to talk freely with them, the next day you now have to have certain boundaries up because it's you know, you can't have certain conversation as a superior that you could as a peer. But where that gives you the advantage over somebody just coming in, you understand your team's strengths, you understand your team's weaknesses, you understand their frustrations and their jubilation far more than anybody coming in off the street. You have a leg up over somebody coming in that knows nothing about your team because you've done the work with them. And if you've established yourself as somebody who is part of a team being promoted into a, a superior role within your team doesn't feel like you're being separated from your team. All it feels like it's a natural progression and evolution of your leadership skills. Your team will continue to look to you, provided you have been the leader in their team. You know, a lot of the positions that I've gone into leadership for, I didn't start as a leader. I, I worked in the team as part of the team and naturally, you know, naturally moved myself towards being more of a decision maker, 
being somebody that my team can depend on and go to. And they know that I truly have their best interests at heart. I think the biggest challenge for leaders, especially, you know, coming from an organization or a team and being promoted from within is the concept of, well, now where does my loyalty lie? Because last week I was going out after work for drinks and hanging out with my teams and, you know, talking like we do about our superiors and about our jobs and, uh, you know, about our natural, you know, our day-to-day operations where I think most of us naturally start to feel like we can't do that anymore once we become leaders. And it's a fallacy in thought. It only changes because we say it has to change. Your teams trust you to be a leader. That doesn't stop just because you now have a title, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what I'm also hearing from you is that the transition into a leadership role does not begin with the title change. It begins when you are an equal member of the laboratory, whatever team you're part of, and you naturally start to take on the projects, start to make decisions, start to help your teammates in a leadership type way Mm -hmm. so that when the title change comes with it, it's a lot smoother of a transition. Yeah, absolutely. And the equality never goes away. Right. You know, I strive to make sure my teams understand that I don't feel above them in any way. There's a hierarchy in business because there has to be, right? For any number of reasons, regardless of what your business is, there has to be a hierarchy. There has to be a chain of command for lack of a better term or phrase. But the equality doesn't go anywhere. My teams and I are equal to one another. We're people, right? And we have jobs, we have lives, we are people together. I just happen to have a title that makes me responsible for your success and your failure. So the equality never goes away. You're still equal to your team. If anything, your team is more important than you. Leaders come and go. How many different supervisors can a unit have in a year? Four, five, depending on the turnover of the business. What's always constant? The team members. They don't go anywhere. To contrast that, what are some of the benefits of being a new leader in an organization you've never been a part of? You know, you get to come in with a fresh slate. And I think that's the biggest advantage is nobody here knows who you are. And you really get to take the reins and be the leader you want to be. And you can try things that you might not be as comfortable trying when you get promoted from within, right? Like, you know, for example, let's say, versus getting promoted from within, you want to be a little more assertive, right? And you want to take a much more, you know, hands-on approach with how you give direction to your teams. If you have never done that, if that's not something you ever established when you were part of a team and were promoted from within, it's incredibly difficult to establish that once you make the transition. Whereas if I come in off the street, this team doesn't know anything about me. What they're going to know from me as a leader is what they see in the first couple months. I get to establish whoever I want to be, whichever leader I want to be, without having to worry about what my team's perception of my now changing philosophy would be. So as a new leader coming in to an organization, how do you build your team's trust in those first 
critical two, three months? What is it your role to establish? Listen, it's the first thing that you can do to establish a trust base with your teams. Listen to them. Most teams just want to be heard. Most people just want to feel like they're being heard. You know, one of the things that I do, excuse me, with a new team is I have a conversation together as a group and I let them know things are going to change, right? I've never been here before. I don't know how this unit operates. I don't know what makes you successful. Therefore, I can't know what areas you have to improve in. So it's important for me that you guys understand, come to me with anything you want to bring, whether it be airing grievances or venting, or you just want to tell me you can't stand the way that I do things, right? Or you have suggestions that you think might be, you know, a way to make your unit more successful. I have found that teams that get leaders who are not from their their unit or their organization, they're much more open and sharing how they think they can be better as a business or as an organization with people that they don't know. You know, there's no judgment or at least perceived no judgment. So it's important for me to establish with my teams right away that you have a safe space to bring up anything that you want, but also making sure that they understand you have the safe space to say what you'd like. The final decision is mine. And I fully expect you as a member of this team to get behind the decisions that I make, even if you don't like them, right? And immediately follow that up with, I'm going to be wrong. I am going to make mistakes and I'm going to make a lot more of them at the early part of of our time together because you're going to, you know, and it's one of the hardest challenges for, for leaders, regardless of where they come from, is getting right with the fact that you're going to be wrong more than you're going to be right. It's okay to be wrong. You learn when you're wrong. Where you fail as a leader is when one, you refuse to acknowledge that you could be wrong. Or two, you refuse to acknowledge that there are quote unquote subordinates below you who know your job better than you ever will. You know, I worked for the post office and one of the positions that I held was out in delivery. And there were carriers who were on my team that had been carrying mail for 25 years. Those folks have forgotten more about carrying mail than I will ever know. The natural part of the business, they've done it for 25 years. I was there for two and a half. You know, I will never have the knowledge that they do in that specific part of the business. It it behooves me as a leader to make sure I, I hear them and I give them the space to teach me. You know, so it's important to establish with your teams right away that, yeah, I might be your quote unquote superior in terms of the chain of command that we have, but I'm here to learn from you. My expectation of you as my team is to teach me to make sure that I can put you in position to be successful. Right. And and to summarize that, it's you're engaging each other in mutual learning. And then as a leader, when you ask questions... It's you're asking questions to learn rather than cross-examine or make a conversation feel like an interrogation or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Because your teams are on guard immediately. The the second a leader comes and talks to somebody that's part of the team, their their guard immediately goes up and they're wondering why on earth you're coming to talk to me. (laughs) I'm sure you've experienced that before, right? Especially if you have leaders that are not super present. You know, if you only see your, your, your supervisor or your manager once a week, 
you're on edge every time you see them <laughs> because you have no idea what they're there for. You know, so you have to remove those boundaries. And one of the easiest ways to remove those boundaries is allowing your teams to feel like they're teaching you. Even if in actuality, there's not a whole lot of teaching happening, perception is important to your teams. It means nothing to you as leaders. It means everything to your teams. I love it. It What this started was a conversation about really these pillars of philosophy that a new leader needs to establish as they come into their role. And, you know, we've covered so far the importance of listening and the importance of being heard, providing a space um, to provide opinion uh, or conversation. So tell me a little bit more about additional pillars of philosophy um, and how how a leader would identify them. What are some key important ones um, that they should be mindful of? Yeah, the, the pillars of philosophy is a really fun one for me, because if you polled 50 different leaders, you'd get 50 different pillars, right? Because each individual leader has to establish what they find to be their most important foundations of who they want to be as leaders. For me, my number one is probably accountability, right? I find it incredibly important for me to hold myself accountable before I hold anybody else accountable. If my team sees me admitting, you know, or owning up to, hey, that that's that's my mess up, that's my mistake. I will learn from this going forward. I will make sure it doesn't happen again. And not only do they hear that, then they see me put myself in position to 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 rectify those mistakes. They're far less apprehensive when I come to them and go, hey, I need you to be better at this. What can I do to help you be better at this? Because if they see me being the first one going, okay, guys, my mistake, you know, this is where I screwed up. This one's on me. They're much more comfortable admitting that themselves, right? And when you can remove those immediate boundaries that go up when you try to correct a behavior, it's the biggest challenge for you as a leader. Especially when we're talking about a laboratory setting, that's such an important um pillar to have for accountability because a lot of the items that we deal with is patient safety, right? So if you make a mistake, um, you can make a decision to either, well, how do I cover it up so that no one finds out? How do I fix it before anyone notices versus the the um, ownership of saying, hey, I need help with this. I messed up. How do I fix this in a timely matter so it doesn't affect patient care? So very important in our healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. what other pillars of philosophy uh adaptability you know is probably my my next biggest one and you know i kind of highlight this with the with the, the the idea of progress versus nostalgia you know for, for those listening that that have kids right we'll get to you child-free friends here in just a moment right but for for those of you that have kids that can directly relate to this ask yourselves do my kids care about what i did when i was their age overwhelmingly likely your answer is no for our child free friends listening ask yourselves when you were a kid say 12 13 14 years old did you care what your parents or guardians did when they were your age of course you didn't because you're 14 and you know everything right mm -hmm. and you don't care what the dinosaurs down the street are, are saying about life right because you got it all figured out and, and the truth is progress doesn't care about our nostalgia the world doesn't care how you used to do things. Your team doesn't care 
what kind of a leader you were at, at a previous organization. Your new leaders coming in don't care how the previous leader did things, right? You have to be able to be adaptable to whatever is happening around you. And it's more important for leaders to be able to do that because the, the truth is your teams won't be. You'll have some on your team who will be able to, but most of your teams don't like change. We, we fight change for, for, for some reason, right? We, we seem to think that you know, change is, is a bad thing. And, and I like my, my stuff very, very consistent. You know, when I have conversations with team members who bring that up, right, who say, I, I struggle with change. I don't like when things are different day to day. The first thing that I ask them is, are you the same person today that you were a year ago? And I think over the last year, that's an easy answer for everybody. No, you know, we're, we're very different people today than we were a year ago. But then dive deeper into that and ask them, how much of a difference do you see from five years ago? It's probably pretty significant. The third follow-up is, do you see yourself being the same person a year from now? You're not going to find very many people who will say, no, I'm the same person that I've always been. Because none of us are. We are in a constant state of change. It's the only thing we're guaranteed other than death is to change continually. So if you can highlight for your teams that you as a person are changing constantly, it makes them much more comfortable with the idea that this business can change constantly. Our teams can change constantly. Our leaders can change constantly. And that's okay. And getting them to that place of comfort is one of the most difficult aspects of being a leader. I was just going to say that in the laboratory, I think that that is a really or can be a really tough ask because especially if you work in a hospital laboratory, you're talking about a very large facility with many departments and many um, levels of expertise, if you will. So you have a new graduate that's fresh out of university and we are, you know, or that group of people rather is um, very adaptable um, to change and they are very mm -hmm. eager to learn and they are, um, you know, kind of the, the, the people that can set, set the tone for change management that comes in with whatever new processes that you install. And then you have um, individuals that have worked, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years in that same laboratory. And they come with so much experience, especially about what things work, what don't. So it can be tough at times for a leader in such a diverse team to, well, how do you, how do you manage these two or the very wide gradient, um, not only of skill set, of knowledge, um, and of adaptability? So how would you manage that? Yeah, you know, I, I disagree slightly. I think it's, I think having a diverse workforce, a diverse team, and when I say diversity in this specific context, I mean how long somebody has been doing a specific job, right? Like let's mm -hmm. take one of your labs, for example, and let's just take the number 10. I'm not a mathologist by any means, so I'll keep the number simple <laughs> here, okay? Of those 10, you have four who have been there for 30 years, right? You have two who have been there for 15, and you have four who are coming in brand new, first couple months on the job, right? So you've got four brand new folks, two folks that have been there about 15 years, and four that have been there for 30. As a leader, that's a perfect scenario for me 
because now I have a little bit of everything to pull from, right? We as leaders are responsible for adapting to our teams. It's not our team's responsibility to adapt to us, right? We need to adapt to them. For, for me in that scenario, I now have four people who I can draw from a well of knowledge that I can never replace because they have been doing this job or this business for so long. They've done things that are no longer done anymore. They are able to look back and speak directly to how we made it to today, right? Mm -hmm. The folks who are just coming in have absolutely no frame of reference for why we do the things that we do today, right? And one of a large part of, of a team's cohesiveness is understanding the why of, of what they're doing. If your teams don't understand why they're doing their job, you've lost your team, right? So to be able to have people to draw from, to teach the newer folks coming in, hey, here's how we got to here, they'll have an appreciation for not only where we are today, but where your teams can go, how you utilize that younger you know, crowd coming in. When I say younger, I just mean in the, in the specific how long you've been yep. in this business, right? Those folks that are just coming in are motivated, right? They've got no bad habits in your business. <laughs> they, they haven't been around long enough, right? They haven't been working in this business long enough to be cynical about everything that happens, right? They're wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. They're ready to take the world on. Combining that energy with the knowledge of the people that have been around forever leads to a very, very successful team. If you as leaders can manage all of those personalities properly. And that's where the adaptability piece comes in mm -hmm. is A, knowing your team, B, listening to your team and C, what I'm hearing is figuring out how to leverage the different um, excitement levels and skill sets and how to get everyone to kind of play together um, to make a change happen in a positive manner. Because a lot of the times we can't control the change that's coming with an organization. Um, and so as, as a leader, you, you're not starting the change, you're implementing the change and you have to figure out how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you used the word control, right? Because control is, is one of those things, especially as leaders, we have a, a, a fallacy in thought of, right? What can you control as a leader? The same thing that you can control as a person, right? Nothing. You can control your actions and your reactions to other people's actions. That's it. You have no control over anything else, right? You can have the illusion that you have, quote unquote, control of your team. But all it is is manipulating your team into getting the job done in the, in the way that you see it being done or the vision that you have for your team. And manipulation is not a bad thing. We manipulate things every day. Now, teachers manipulate their classrooms constantly to ensure that their students are learning. Professors manipulate their adult students constantly to make sure that they're <laughs> learning. Every leader you have ever had manipulates your team to make sure that they are getting the work done and hitting the metrics that they're responsible for as leaders. We get so hung up on the negative connotations of words that we think manipulation is a bad thing. It's not. It's what you do as a leader. Hmm. And there seem to be, you know, several words around that besides manipulation and and how we use them and how we identify them. Uh, are there, you know, when you think about when you think about a leader 
uh, how you want to be perceived. It can be, are you um, aggressive as a leader? Are you authoritarian? Like those kinds of words and helping you define, once again, your leadership style. What, what would you say is kind of the happy middle ground between being an authoritarian leader um, that people are afraid of, right? But then things get done all the time because there's consequences to a negative behavior versus the compassionate leader that's constantly empathizing with their team member. You know, you want to leave work early because you have your son's graduation and then you give all of that at the same time. So how do you kind of define the balance, right? Because, you know, you said manipulation is a negative word. You know, many descriptions of a leader can be, you you can take many words and see them as negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you balance that? Um, that's, that's a great question. You know, I, I would challenge either one of those leaders on, on either end of the spectrum, whether you find yourself to be very assertive or a, a go-getter. I hear people say all the time right. in interviews, yep. right? Or I hear people say, well, I'm a very empathetic leader. Can't stand that word, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Empathy is not a thing. It doesn't exist. If I asked you right now what the definition of empathy is, what would you tell me? Someone who relates to someone else's condition or whatever mm-hmm. it is that they're experiencing. That's sympathy. The definition of empathy is to understand another person's feelings and where they're coming from, right? We don't have the ability to remove our own individual perspective bias to truly understand another person's thoughts and feelings, right? I can never truly understand how you feel about a scenario. You and I could go through the exact same thing, all variables equal, and come out at the other end feeling differently about it because we're different people, right? So the words that we use are important. So if a leader I'm ever interviewing says I'm a very empathetic person, I immediately jump on that and we talk about it, right? But I challenge either end of that spectrum to come somewhere in the middle. The authoritative style of leadership is nowhere near as effective as we've been led to believe. Okay? The, the, the second you tell somebody, take you for example, right? If your boss were to come over to you right now and say, Galena, you're really bad at this, go fix it now. What's your initial reaction to it? Nothing positive. No positive mm-hmm. emotion towards myself or my yep. boss probably would take place. <laughs> really good controlling your words there because <laughs> I think you and I both know what a lot of people's initial reactions would be, right? There'd, there'd be some colorful language <laughs> and some colorful thoughts in that, right? We don't learn that way. People don't learn by being told how wrong they are. They learn by being told the things they're doing well. And you have to balance that, right? You have to be able to give direction and to guide your team towards where you want. You are going to get a far better reaction by saying, yes, Galena, you did this perfect, do this more. Because we have that natural drive in us to, somebody like that? <laughs> I, I can get more of that. The, the endorphins running and all the, you know, everything running in our bodies when we're praised. Is, is much easier to chase than the negativity that comes with that, right? Whereas somebody on the other end who wants to try to relate to every person and wants to try to be that friendly person ends up getting walked all over constantly, right? To that person, I would say, understand separation, right? You need to know 
harken back to what we talked about at the beginning of, of, of our conversation. Know your strengths and your weaknesses, right? Take a look into yourself. And if you know that what you want is to be liked, right? And what you want is to be related to, you still have to set boundaries for yourself in a professional environment the same way that you do in your personal life. You can, you can be understanding and be sympathetic with your team and still be a leader and understand that this is a business and I might really like you as a person. I might love the conversations that we have, but from a business perspective, what you're doing isn't working. And if we can't fix it, then we're going to have to have different conversations and they're uncomfortable, you know, especially for people that, you know, don't like confrontation, right? Who, who don't thrive on, on having those uncomfortable conversations, which is most of us. It's a very difficult aspect of leadership is, is getting right with the discomfort of having those conversations. If that makes sense. I, I rambled a whole bunch. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And it kind of leads to the next topic, really. And that is uh, difficult conversations. And as a new leader, as you're you're kind of managing um, behavior or you're managing your team, uh, how do you approach difficult conversations or crucial conversations? Uh, so maybe let's put it more concretely. I have uh, an employee that is continually clocking in late for their shift. Mm-hmm. How, what does conversation one, two, and three look like? It, it depends a little bit on the personality of your team member, right? But the foundation of these conversations is, is the same regardless. You bring that team member in for a conversation and you have to talk with them about one, why they're in the room, right? And you don't tell them why they're in the room. This is where the manipulation aspect of leadership gets to come in, right? If you and I are having this conversation and I bring you into my office, right? Not shutting the door necessarily, right? I'm not going to make it a super formal conversation the first time, right? We're going to chat. Because I want to try to figure out why it is you keep clocking out late. Maybe it's something that can be easily corrected, right? Maybe it's a, hey, you know what? I've got a couple of lizards at the house and they eat at <laughs> seven o'clock every day. And I just, I can't get here until 740, even though I start at 735. For me as a leader, that's an easy fix. Okay. You need that five extra minutes. Okay. I'm going to start you five minutes later and you'll work five minutes later. Now what I've done is I've gained... I've gained your trust as a member of my team that you know I'm willing to listen to what you have going on and within reason I'm willing to make adjustments from a business perspective, right? Well, let's say it's not that easy, right? Let's say it's just a, ah, you know what? I just kind of keep waking up late. You need one from that team member why they're here. When you and I are having this conversation, you are going to tell me why you're in my office. I'm not going to tell you why you're here, right? The second thing that I need from you is how is this affecting our team? How is you clocking in late a detriment to what we're trying to do as a team and as an organization, right? The third part of that conversation is how do we fix it? And I'm not going to tell you how to fix it. You're going to commit to me how you are going to fix it. And the fourth and final thing that you have to get, what happens next? If this continues to happen, where do we go from here? And again, I'm not telling you you as the team member are going to tell me what happens next if we go from here. You need all four of those things. 
from your team member. If you get all four, you will never fire another person in your life. They will fire themselves because the second time they come in for a conversation, you get the same four. Why are you here? How is this a detriment to our team? How are you going to fix it? And what happens if you don't? You get that from them a second time. By the time you bring them in for the third conversation, there's no pretense of a, of a, of dialogue to get to those things. They're going to give you all four when they come <laughs> in, right? They're going to give you all four. And then the fourth time you have to bring them in and you tell them, hey, you know what? This just isn't going to work. I'm going to have to let you go. You're never going to have an employee blow up in your face because they know. They've told you three separate times all four of those things. You've saved yourself the discomfort by letting them tell you why they're there and what's going to happen next. Thank you for that. So then out of all of that, you know, so far we have talked about accountability. We've talked about adaptability. And if you, as pillars of philosophy, and so if you can kind of wrap this up with a, a bow on top of, is there another um, pillar of philosophy that you think is crucial for a new leader coming into their role? Acceptance. You know, and and that that word is is meant as a very broad acceptance of everything, right? Not even just from a, a leadership standpoint, but from our lives in general, right? Accept that you will never understand another person. You can't. We don't have the ability to do so. Accept the fact that you're not going to agree with other people, and that's okay, right? Accept that future Galena is not beholden to today's Galena. Galena from two years from now doesn't have to feel the same way that Galena does today. Just like you today don't have to feel the same way you did two years ago, except the fact that you are constantly changing and that change won't ever stop. And then accept the random and embrace the cosmic scale and everything in that none of this means anything. It only has meaning because we as individuals choose to give this meaning, whether that's you're a leader because it makes you feel good or you volunteer because it makes you feel like you're contributing to the world, right? Or you grow your own vegetables and you recycle because you feel like you're contributing to future generations. The fact of the matter is you're here for a blink. None of it matters. Embrace it and accept the fact that none of it matters unless you choose for it to matter. And at the end of the day also that the only thing we truly have control over is our own emotions and the way we act and or react to a situation. You're exactly correct. C control is our actions and our reactions only. Now that we've covered some crucial conversation management, thank you for that. I wanted to bring it back to the entire team. And how do you manage, you know, negative team members. And what I mean by that is the naysayers, right? You have a change or a project or policy that you need to implement, right? You bring your team in for a morning huddle and you state what the change is. And right away, uh, you have one or two individuals that express to everyone else the negativity towards that change, right? And the reason I ask is because 
it has the potential to bring the morale about the change down for the entire team. So in that moment, how would you manage that kind of immediate feedback that would potentially cascade down to the rest of the team? Yeah, it's, it's a very high potential for, you know, challenging personalities to really bring down the morale of, of your team when it comes to, to change management. You can basically look at your team as a, a, a mix of a percentage, right? You've got your top 10% that are your overachievers, right? Who are, who are going to go above and beyond their job duties to ensure that they're being successful. Then you've got your bottom 10% who are going to dislike every decision you make <laughs> just because it's you making the decision. And then you've got your 80% in the middle, right? And that 80% in the middle is easily influenced by your top and your bottom 10%, right? You as a leader are going to spend probably 90% of your time dealing with 10% of your team, right? The, the best way to get out ahead of that is, is to get out of the mindset that I see a lot of organizations trying to push forward in that the philosophy is you as a leader should be the one seeming like you're making the change, right? Like your teams should always believe change that's coming is coming from you. You're setting yourself up to fail with that mentality. Your teams know better. You're entry-level management for a reason. You don't have the authority to, to make some of the decisions and changes that are happening. Getting out in front of that and telling your teams honestly, hey, you know what? This is a change that's coming. I don't know how it's going to work. I might not you know, agree with it. Here are some of the obstacles that I see us having. However, I'm also not always right, right? And if you've established that with your teams that you're okay being wrong, you already have credibility with them prior to this conversation. So when you come into this conversation saying, hey, here's the change that we're going to do, I'll be honest. I don't know how it's going to be successful. Here are the obstacles that I see. Here are the benefits that I see. I need you as my team, as my eyes and ears to see the things that I'm not going to see. Because what you're doing is you're taking away the power of that 10% to be negative. You're already telling your team, yeah, there are going to be, there are going to be obstacles with this change that I don't know how it's going to work. So th those negative personalities or those challenging personalities on your team have already lost some of their punch because you've already said what they were going to say. You've already told your teams, I don't know if this is going to work. The only way that we're going to find out is by giving it a real and honest effort in implementing this change so we have a data set to see if it works or if it doesn't. Another really good way to manage those challenging personalities is give them the space. Give them the space to be negative. Some people are just built that way. They want to be negative, right? They live and thrive off the complaining, off the off the drama, right? They they want to have issues at work because it makes them feel like their days go by faster when there are problems at work, right? They they want to have that avenue to be frustrated about the about those things. Give them the avenue. You don't need to remove it from them. If you try to remove their avenue to 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 vent and be frustrated. You're only giving them more credibility because we mentioned earlier that perception to you as a leader means nothing, right? You can't be weighed down by how a decision will look to your team. You have to make the decision that you feel is right. 
at the same time, you have to balance that with the knowledge that perception means everything to your team. And if the perception to your team is that you're going to shut down anything that disagrees with you immediately, you give credibility to the people who disagree with you because you're not giving them the avenue to air those grievances. If you give them the space to, to safely and healthfully air those things and you can address them individually, now of that 10%, you're going to have a couple who walk it back and who are going to go, you know what? I didn't agree with it. I didn't like it. But hey, that person heard me. That person listened to me. They answered my questions. They allowed me to be frustrated. They're no longer as frustrated as the couple other. So now that 10% has quickly dwindled down to 5 4% of your team that are very challenging. And that's small of a data set. If your other 80%, your middle 80% knows that you're a reasonable leader or feels that you're reasonable and are approachable with things that they're frustrated with, they'll just come to you. Your teams are like small high schools, regardless of the organization <laughs> that you work in, regardless of what business you happen to be in, your teams are high schools. They're going to talk. And regardless of what you say behind closed doors, it is going to go out to the floor. So if you have more of those conversations out on the floor, you remove the ability for gossip, right? Even if you have difficult conversations, and in this context, when I say difficult, I mean team members coming to you saying, hey boss, this sucks, this is stupid, here's why. Bring those things out into a huddle. You don't have to call those team members out, but say, hey, I've talked to a handful of you. Here are, are some of the obstacles that I see with this new change. Here are some of the things you guys have brought to me. What do you think? And ask the whole team. Because now you're doing a couple of things, right? You're, you're giving credibility to, to those who, who came to you and were frustrated. Because the first thing they're going to do when you're done with that huddle is go to other team members and go, that was me. I brought it to that person and he thought it was important enough or she thought or they thought it was important enough to bring up. I'm being heard. Now they're going to transition from that challenging personality into your middle your middle personalities mm -hmm. because you make them feel like they're valuable. And that's the biggest key in, in change management is making your teams feel like their opinions are important. Even if, you know, most leaders I think would agree, it's probably not. You know, if you get a hundred ideas from your team, maybe two of them have any sort of, of credibility to them, right? But you still have to hear the other 98 in order to foster that mentality with your teams that they matter. What I'm hearing is that the challenging personalities or even the naysayers, if you will, to change management, really you turn them into the canary in the coal mine to instead say, okay, well, these are going to be the people that initially identify the potential downfalls of whatever change is going to come in. So really you have turned something that had a potential to be negative into a, how do I use this to my advantage? They have identified, they were the first to identify a potential issue that we can now mitigate ahead of the change. Mm -hmm. it, absolutely. It's, it's, it's looking at change from a different lens, right? Because it, every one of your team members has a different lens for that change. 
And if you are a naturally positive person, if you're naturally optimistic and you don't look for the negative in scenarios, it can be a, a very difficult thing for you as a leader to find obstacles and things. Because if, if you're a person that is, okay, you know what? This change is here. There's nothing I can do about it. So let's roll with it and let's find the good in it. You're not looking for the bad, right? And, and that's not a bad thing, right? That's not a, that's not a negative thing. But you need those, the, those parts of your teams that immediately go to, why is this an obstacle? Because it provides a perspective that you yourself might not have. How do you balance your kind of public attention that you give the 10% difficult conversation, troublemakers, whatever the, the naysayers, right? Um, in terms of balancing it with the uh, hearing the input from the other 80% and the 10%, because what, what I have seen happen is those people that are the really high achievers, like let's go, any change is great. They feel like may, may feel like they are not getting the attention from you because they're watching instead you manage the other side of the spectrum all the time. So how do you balance their opinion and their value? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult balance. Um, what I do with my top 10% is I typically will ask, you know, I'll ask my highest performing or my, in my, you know, vision, best performing team members, are you okay with public recognition for your work? Are you okay if I bring you up in front of a team and tell them how amazing you are and why I'm bringing you up in front of the team? Because if their answer is no, and you do it anyway, you've now lost a part of your 10%. They don't want that recognition. <laughs> you are going to have members of your team who are, <coughs> excuse me, uncomfortable being recognized for their good work, right? But when you have people who are comfortable doing it, you call those people out and you tell them in front of the team, hey, you're doing really good. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily in front of your whole team. Like we mentioned earlier, your team is going to talk. If only one or two team members overhear you praising somebody, now it's in their head. Hey, if I do something good, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get the pat on the back that that person just got. And that's what I want, right? For the other side of things, be very, very careful about the scenarios where you correct behavior in front of your teams. I will almost always advise leaders to not do it, right? Unless you can clearly see a tangible, positive reason for doing it, don't. Because you're going to turn that 80% farther away from the top. It has the opposite effect that praising the top does publicly. When you criticize publicly, it doesn't push people towards the top. It actually brings them more towards the bottom. For those that don't want to be recognized publicly or, you know, in front of their peers, you can give recognition to work that was done without recognizing the individual that had done it, right? If you, let's say you work in a, in a, in a product uh, creation line, I worked at Medtronic for a couple of years and it was continual just printing the same pieces for medical parts over and over again, but we'd only have three or four people that we're making each individual part. So instead of saying, 
hey, person A was awesome with team team one. I will just say, hey, team one killed it this week. Their numbers were through the roof. Here are the here are the the marks that they hit. Because now I'm not calling out one person. I'm calling out that whole team. And that team knows who the person is. So they are going to spread the word. Hey, that was awesome. We got that recognition. But that was all that person. Gossip isn't necessarily a negative thing. It can be used to your advantage, provided you as a leader give good gossip for your team to have. If we've covered so far praise as a method of um, change management, and we've talked about how to manage the naysayers of change. What about engaging your team? So instead of being passive receivers of the change that they have to implement, how do you as a leader go about getting them engaged in the change? Ask. Ask. The, the, the biggest frustration I have with new leaders when, when, I, when I teach or when I talk with them is I, I hear from them all the time. I don't have time to do this or I don't have time to do that. And the reality is you don't have time to do everything that you're required to do as a leader. You just don't. That's why you're part of change management. That's why you're a leader is because your superiors know they're giving you 15 things to do and time to do 10, right? The one thing that can never not have time for is your team. Number one with a bullet is always your team. You make time for your team. Go around and ask. And you don't have to ask every person every day. Break out your team, manage your team properly where you're asking every person at least once a month, hey, how do you feel about things? What are things that you like? What are things that you don't? Because again, your team is going to talk and they're going to know that you're talking to them and they're going to know that you're you're listening and that you're hearing them. Be very careful and make sure that you're actually talking to everybody because it can turn on you real quick if you're only talking to the top 50, 60% and you choose to ignore the challenging mm-hmm. 40% because you don't want to deal with it, that's going to have the opposite effect that you want. And it's going to have far less engagement than you think you're going for. But just asking, people love to talk. Even introverts love to have a conversation mm-hmm. when it's centered around their thoughts and opinions. Just ask your teams. And what it comes down to, uh, or hopefully as a side effect of those conversations, you find that as a leader, you are able to delegate some of your tasks to your team members and empower them um, to create and be a part of the change. Yeah. It's, and that's, you know, that's what we call building the bench. You know, my, my entire goal as a leader of a team is for that unit, that team to operate just as efficiently with me gone as I am there. I know that I've been successful as a leader when I don't have to come to work and my team operates the exact same way as it did when I was there. I know that I'm successful as a leader when my team doesn't need to come to me for everything. When I start to feel obsolete, when I start to feel that anybody on this team could replace me, that's when I know I've done my job as a leader. We get into this, we get into this rut sometimes as as leaders where we think we have to withhold knowledge right because we think we have to make ourselves irreplaceable to an organization when the, the fact is 
Every one of us is irreplaceable. Every one of your people could in your department could quit tomorrow. And you know what your organization is going to do? We'll replace every one of you because every one of you is replaceable. Where we are the strongest as, you know, the, as the workforce and as entry level management team members is when we are all on the same page sharing knowledge and not only sharing good knowledge, but sharing obstacles, sharing, you know, things that frustrate us, things that make us happy. When we have the safe space for all of us to communicate openly, that's when teams are the most successful. Now, I'm not saying share everything with your team members, right? Because there are things you just can't, right? There are things that would be more of a detriment to your team to share than not to share, right? Like, for example, the initial phases of a reduction in force, right? If you as a leader find out that your organization is going to go through a RIF process or a reduction in force, but that's the only information that you have. Is it a good thing for you to go tell your team, hey, we're going to do a reduction in force. I have no idea what that means. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Probably not, <laughs> yeah. right? Without having more information, you're doing more harm than good. So you have the responsibility as a leader to kind of pick through what knowledge is important and beneficial for the team to share and what knowledge is a detriment to your team. To summarize that, it what I'm hearing is a leader doesn't need a bunch of followers. Instead, your role as a leader is to surround yourself and build your team to all be leaders that are you know, capable of you know, managing themselves, the environment around them, um, whether or not you are there to enforce it. Yeah, 100%. You know, my, what I think the, the greatest testament or challenge of a leader is, how can they develop other leaders, right? I, I find it much more rewarding in my position to work with somebody and then get promoted and go somewhere else than not. You know, I, I, I find myself to be a successful leader when members of my team are getting promoted into leadership roles. That's how I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be as a leader. I love it. Thank you so much, Pat, for being on our show. Uh, for our ASCLS listeners, before we depart, uh, just a couple of quick reminders. First of all, we have our 2020, 2021 joint annual meeting coming up June 27th through July 1st. It's in Louisville um, at the Omni Louisville Hotel. So visit uh, ASCLS.org to find out more details. And you can either attend online or in person. So many ways to experience, earn some CEs. Uh, listen to some fantastic speakers, just like we did um, here today. And also, since we're talking about leadership today, uh, uh, a plug for the National ASCLS Leadership Academy. So if you guys don't know or haven't heard, ASCLS as a national organization has an annual Leadership Academy. I know applications for this uh, year were already due in April, uh, but something to keep in mind, if you have an interest in future years, visit ASCLS.org. And in the participate menu uh, there in that drop down, there's a Leadership Academy option where you can find out application, more information. Uh, and if you are interested, you can always uh, reach out to anyone in ASCLS to provide you with more information. 
And with that, I'm Galena. We've had Patrick Lundstrom with us today and have a great night.